0: Good morning, I, uh, I came out a little early during that song, I didn't think it would go on, but it's fun to pretend like I'm in the band, so, you know, maybe one day I'll walk up to the mic, but they might have to turn it off, but uh, it's fun to be up here with those guys. Good morning, I'm Joe Collins, welcome to See Me Church, we are in a series called The Oikos Principle, it's the idea that the primary way in which Jesus spread his message was and still is through the relational world of his Followers, oikos, is a Greek word that means household, and it, it's, it's in the Bible it's used to describe a person's relational world. Last time we were together, we talked about inviting your oikos, and today we're going to talk about preparing your oikos. So I have a question, a couple of questions really. Why do athletes spend hours and hours and hours training? Why do teams spend hours and hours and hours practicing? Why do coaches spend hours and hours and hours preparing game plans? Feel free, shout out any answer that comes to mind, but why do those things happen? Why do people do that? Practice makes perfect. perfect. Oh, a hand up in the back. What are you going to do, Daniel? I don't know. What are you going to do if you don't prepare? <laughs> that's right. Yes. The competition, is preparing. the competition is preparing. That's a good point. That's right. I mean, yes, mine. Because that's, that's what works. At the end of the day, teams, coaches, individual athletes, they prepare so they can win. You know, as Christians, we have something we're trying to win. It's not a competition, it's not a race, but it is people to Christ. We're trying to win our worlds to Christ. The people that we interact with on a regular basis, the people that are closest to us, we want them to know Christ. And if athletes will go to all this trouble and coaches all this trouble to prepare to win a game, how much more should we as believers prepare ourselves to win our worlds for Christ. So today I'm starting a three-part series. It's all about this concept of prepare. We're going to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're not going to go line by line or or exact verse by verse like we did in our Mark series, our Jesus Worth Following series, but we are going to kind of go through the whole book skipping along the top, so to speak. We're not going to just skip. We'll we'll dig into certain things, but we won't cover every issue in the book. I'm saying, let me put it that way. And the idea is is that we're going to use the instruction that we learned in 1 Corinthians to help prepare us, to better prepare us to win our worlds for Christ. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've read your Bible for any length of time, you've come to realize that 1 Corinthians is a book that has a lot of what not to do's in it. It's really a book about what not to do. The church that had been established in Corinth had gone through some real challenges and they were making a lot of mistakes. And so the Apostle Paul who founded the church sent the letter in order to help correct some of the mistakes that they were on. But I I don't want to look at it through the lens of what not to do for our series today for preparing ourselves for our oikos. I want to look at the book of 1 Corinthians through the lens of what we should do. Not just what he's telling us not to do, but what is he telling us to do. So if you have a Bible or a phone or you can follow along on the screen, open it up to first Corinthians. I'm going to say a prayer and we're going to jump right in. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. As always, thank you for the great time of worship and the time to be together as family. God, I pray now that you speak and minister to each and every one of us that we hear your words and, and, uh, and motivate us, God, to be better for our oikos to be better for the people in our lives so that we can win as many as possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace giving you in Christ Jesus. We're off to a good start in the book. If you were in the church in Corinth, you're feeling pretty good right now. Lots of words of encouragement. You know, the church in Corinth was very dear To Paul's heart. It was near and dear to him. He had established it during what we call his second missionary journey, somewhere around 52 AD. And it was the first missionary effort that he championed on his own. I want to show you a little map here. Simple map of the area. You have Jerusalem down in the bottom right hand corner. So this is the Asian continent. Syria above that. And then across the Aegean Sea, that is modern-day Greece, and that would be the European continent. This is the path, as far as we can tell from, from the scriptures, that Paul took that ultimately led him to the church, to the city of Corinth. It all began after the famous Jerusalem Council. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. We'll talk about it another time. But at that council, afterwards, Paul left from Jerusalem, went to Antioch, where he was kind of based. That was his sort of home-based church. And after a little bit of time, he decided to go on a missionary journey. The second one he took, but this one, he decided to kind of go it on his own. He gathered a friend named Silas, and they left north. They went north out of Antioch to Tarsus, to Derby, to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. That whole area called Galatia is modern-day Turkey. They eventually made their way to that port city called Trost. They crossed the Aegean Sea, and for the very first time in history, the gospel was brought to the continent of Europe. He landed in Neapolis, and along the way, established Christian communities in all those various cities as they went throughout that part of northern Greece. They called it Macedonia at the time. Modern day, it's Greece. Eventually, he ended up in Berea, where he left Timothy and Silas, and he left on his own, traveled by boat to Athens. Very famous story of Paul being in Athens. In the ancient days of Greek, during the Greek Empire, Athens was their capital city. It was, the, it was the creme de la creme. By the time Paul got there, the Romans had taken over. It had not become, it wasn't the same capital that it once was, but it was certainly a hub of intellectualism. He spent some time there and before eventually making his way to the city of Corinth, which had replaced Athens as the capital city of the area. Corinth was a port city and it was very wealthy. It was very luxurious, and it was very sinful. There was a lot of immorality and that kind of sin in the city of Corinth. Las Vegas has their phrase, what happens here stays here. Archaeologists have discovered that Corinth actually had a phrase. It said, to live like a Corinthian and it basically meant the same thing. The church there included some Jews but was mainly made up of Gentiles, those are non-Jews, people who were converted out of pagan backgrounds into the faith of into into following Jesus. And there were a number of high-profile members of the church in Corinth. A guy by the name of Erastus. There is actually an archaeological dig. They have actually found evidence archaeologically of Erastus. He was known as the uh, director of public works for the city. Pretty high-level guy. And there is actually an inscription on a stone discovered in the ruins of uh, of, of Corinth that say Erastus, director of public works. He was a member of the church. A couple named Priscilla and Aquila who were... Tent makers like Paul, and they were fellow missionaries. They spent some time in the city of Corinth. And even the synagogue ruler, a guy by the name of Crispus, became a member of the Jesus community in Corinth. But most of the church was made up of everyday people, people a lot like us, just trying to make a living. Paul spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth, preaching Jesus, building a Christ-following community there. Before he eventually left, returned to Jerusalem for a short time, then to Antioch for a short time, and then he went back to, to a city called Ephesus, which you can see there on the map, where he stayed for about three years. And it was there when he was in Ephesus that he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. After he had gotten word that there were some problems happening. Let's jump in to our study of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Okay, yeah, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Nice to know that Paul had an oikos, and that he was working his oikos as leading the church. So after some encouraging words and some introductory remarks, Paul immediately jumps into one of the main issues that the church in Corinth was dealing with. And it was an issue of division. Apparently, there were groups of people in the church, factions, I don't know what you want to call it, divisions, and they were, or cliques, and they were sort of aligning themselves with different leaders in the church. Apollos, Paul, some of the Jews maybe preferred Peter, that's Cephas. And it was getting to the point to where it was becoming hurtful to the unity of the church in Corinth. Now I want to talk about unity for a minute. He uses this phrase, Being perfectly united in mind and thought as a description of unity. But I want to point out that it is a description of unity, not a description of uniformity. Unity has to do with being one, a oneness. And and it really speaks to our internal state, our intentions, and our purposes. We're unified on a goal on a mission, on a vision, whatever you want to call it. One of the great joys I have being a part of Simi Church is that I feel a ton of unity in this church. We have an agreement that we've worked out over a long time of what is our mission and what is our vision, and it is love, to love God and to love people. And it seems like that has unified us better than any rule or regulation I could have ever come up with. That's unity, purpose, an intention. Uniformity is something different. It has more to do with conformity. Think about standards and practices. You know, I think a lot of us, myself included, love rules and standards and practices. We want uniformity. We want everyone to be the same or in the same ballpark as we are. It's very different, difficult to deal with differences. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he's talking about being perfectly united in mind, in thought. He's rather reminding them that it's their belief in Jesus that unifies them. Not the opinions or the perspectives of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or anyone else for that matter. That's not what brings unity. It's their commitment to Jesus that brings unity. Interesting thing to pick up from this is that when divisions occur, the answer is not more uniformity. I see that happen a lot. We get a division, we get disagreements, and suddenly people want to clamp down and set some rules and define some standards and define who's in and who's not in an effort to try to create unity. But Paul is telling us here that unity doesn't come from that. It actually comes from Jesus Christ and our shared vision and intention and purpose that we have with him. That's what brings unity. We have this phrase, in essentials, unity. That's Jesus. He's an essential. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. If we want to be a unified church and if we want to continue being a unified church that sets an example for other churches to look at and for other people to see, we're going to have to agree That Jesus is Lord. And after that, we just love. That's what will bring unity. So when we talk about what to do and to prepare ourselves for our oikos, we got to remember that it's our love for each other, regardless of the differences that's going to win people's hearts. Jesus himself said, if you love like me, then the whole world will know that you're my disciples. He sets the standard. He is the example. We don't worry about the non-essentials. We focus on what's essential and we love. And that's how we're going to prepare ourselves to win our oikos. Skipping into chapter two. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The second thing we need to, focus on in order to prepare ourselves for our oikos is to strive to know Jesus better than we know him right now. Paul is an interesting character. He was born into a devout Jewish family. They were Pharisees. He grew up, he became a Pharisee, and he was one of the most well-known persecutors of the Christian church. He had an experience, an encounter with the risen Lord, he came to faith, and he became a Christian. Later, he was invited to the city of Antioch, where he uh, worked for about a year or so with a man named Barnabas, and he helped build a Christian community there. But in the process, he endured several hardships from both Jews, who he was formerly allied with, and Christians who didn't trust him now that he switched sides, <laughs> including a number of times his life being threatened. He wrote much of the New Testament. He actually experienced miraculous revelations from God. He had visions, real visions, not made up visions, not hallucinations, but real visions from the Lord. And he could make the case for Jesus Christ better. Than anyone It's interesting though That when he got to Corinth After everything he had been through And after all he had learned That he decided to know only one thing Jesus Christ and him crucified I really appreciate being a part of this fellowship I really do I, uh, in the past few years, have been telling people I'm as happy as I've ever been. I'm part of a fellowship that is the best fellowship I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of great fellowships. I love all the fellowships I've been a part of, but I love being here in Seamy church. I really feel that from you. I feel a connection. I feel like I have a lot of support and a lot of trust and a lot of, uh, 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 um, uh, you know, a belief in me. And I want you to know that I don't, I don't take that lightly. When I work on a, a message, when I deliver a Sunday sermon, on average, I'm probably at least spending 15 hours for every sermon I'm doing. And it isn't enough. And I feel like i got to do more. I'm not saying I'm great. I'm just saying I really value the trust you give me, and I want to return that to you in doing the best job that I can. And I'm not even counting my own personal devotional reading or quiet times or whatever. And I'm not boasting, please understand that, but I want you to hear this point. My prayer life, my Bible study, my commitment to knowing Jesus is not a substitute for yours. You may not have full-time job in the ministry like I do, but you have time in your schedule to, to spend it knowing Jesus more or better than you do right now. And I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. I want to cajole you into that understanding that it is imperative for you to constantly grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and of knowing him and him crucified. It's for you. It's for your benefit. If it was good enough for Paul, after all he had learned and all he had done to only know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it's good enough for you and me, isn't it? But it's going to take some time. It's going to take some resolve, as Paul said, I resolved. It's going to take some resolution. And I know that we never have enough time. But there's no substitute for your personal prayer and Bible study. Nothing replaces that. No matter how good I can preach, and I'm not saying I'm good. No matter, you can go get a better one, trust me. And you can get the best preacher in the world. And no matter how good he preaches or she preaches, it's not good enough for you. It's not a substitute. For your own personal growth And prayer life In knowing Jesus Christ So if we're going to prepare ourselves For our oikoses Oikoses, I don't exactly know how to pronounce it Oikoses You're going to have to know Jesus better Than you do right now Chapter 3 What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted a seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their labor. For we are workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. So in chapter 3, Paul then describes himself as a co-worker in God's service, and he describes the church in Corinth, and really any church, as God's field or God's building. So the church in Corinth was at one time front and center in Paul's life. For 18 months, he spent there, focused on that church, on building that church, on making that church into a great, strong, thriving, sustainable community for Jesus Christ, but he eventually left. He returned, as I said, to Jerusalem, then to Antioch, and then he ended up in Ephesus where he spent about three years. And it was while he was in Ephesus that someone from Chloe's household showed up from Corinth and began telling him what was going on in the church in Corinth. Now, look at the map. Corinth and Ephesus are separated by some 250 miles But that didn't mean that Corinth left Paul's oikos. He still cared about the church that he ministered in three years before. They were still on his mind. And even though there was distance, as you can see, both those cities had ports. There was a lot of commerce that went on between the two cities. And so Paul was able to stay connected to his oikos, the Corinthian church. He was able to stay in touch with them through visitors coming back and forth, through writing letters, through sending workers there. And even in Paul's journey later on in the future, he's going to revisit Corinth at least two more times. He never let Corinth drop off of his oikos, off of his relational radar. He always kept them in his world. A number of us... Okay, i got to tell this story first. (laughs) My brother-in-law, Pat, grew up Southern Baptist, and he has all these funny stories about the old days, growing up in church in a small town in Oklahoma. And he uh, told me that his... Dad used to, used to attend a church and every now and then the preacher would start to move away from scripture. He would take a passage and he would begin to apply it. And whenever you apply a passage, you have to know that you're, you're kind of getting into the area of opinion, right? Like I can, I can take a good story here and I can say, hey, this is a good point. I think we should take it. But I got to know that at some point I'm not Jesus Christ. I'm not God and I'm not you know, somehow magically transfixed by the Holy Spirit and I'm speaking the words of God. So I have to know that you're going to have to do with it as you will and that's okay. Because not everything I say, unless I read it from the Bible, is directly from God's mouth to your ears. I'm in the way. So I know that some of this is opinion. And so I'm going to, as Pat's dad used to say, meddle for a minute. He used to say, the preacher went from preaching to meddling. I'm going to meddle here for a second if that's okay. Okay. And I'm saying all that disclaimer because I want you to know that this is for you to take and do with what you will. I understand that everybody's life is different. It's different than mine. And we have different motivations and intentions and purposes. And, and, you know, God's got a will for your life and one for mine. And at some point, we just have to trust that God works all that out. And I'm not here to say what God's will is for your life with the exception of to love God and love people. Okay, so I'm meddling. A lot of us, myself included, are at a stage in life where our kids are getting ready to leave the house, whether it's the school. Actually, I saw someone go, that's already happened. But yes, uh, a lot of us are in that point. Our kids are getting ready to leave, whether it's school or moving, whatever's going on, they're getting ready to fly the coop. Some of us have already been through that, and it's been painful, and I appreciate every one of you that had to go through that already because you're the first through the wall for me and you're helping it be easier when my day comes, and I don't wanna see my kids leave, but I know they gotta go. I, I know they gotta go, I want them to go. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do want them to go. But there's a part of me that kinda of wants them to stay. Okay. Some of us are not geographically separated from the people we love, but maybe emotionally and spiritually we're miles apart. We got to stay connected. Those people who we love are our oikos. They're our household. Those are the people God has strategically and supernaturally placed in our lives. And it is imperative, if we're going to prepare ourselves for our oikos, that we stay connected to them when they go. But for Paul, that didn't mean leave Ephesus and move back to Corinth. He stayed in Ephesus, and that was hard to do. Because he believed God had a will for him in Ephesus. He had a purpose and a mission there that he had to fulfill first, but he never broke relationship with those that he had formerly that were his children, that he loved, he stayed connected. I want to encourage you as you may be sitting in this situation thinking about this, that, that maybe it's okay that they go and you stay connected, but it doesn't necessarily mean you got to go with them. Maybe it does. I'm meddling, I know. But maybe consider that God still has a will for you where you are right now. And that there's other people in your oikos, in your relational world, who still need you here. Again, you do with that as you will. I know I'm out of bounds here. I'm stepping off the, I'm on my soapbox. But I just want to put that out there, that I believe in staying connected And that I believe God wants you to stay connected, and that you got to figure out what that looks like for you, balancing all of the factors out. I want to say again, one more time, that I thank you for giving me so much latitude as a minister. I do feel that. I do feel from the church that you give me a lot of leeway. You, You know, there's a lot of grace that comes my way. And I, again, don't take that lightly. I'm so grateful. But one of the things that I want to say has helped me personally because of your willingness to give that latitude is that we've been able to make a lot of changes in our fellowship over the past couple of years that I believe are helping us move from an event-driven fellowship to an Oikos-driven community. What I mean is this, I've been in our fellowship for many years and it, it dawned on me at one point that man, we have a lot of events. And then it dawned on me that I feel like I'm always going to the next event and I never feel like I have time for catching up for what happened at the previous event. It's just to the next, to the next, to the next. And it struck me that if we were to think of a funnel that, and I'm still meddling, um, but if we were to think of a funnel <laughs> Our funnel was the next event. It's kind of like what we always push people. You got to go to the next thing. You got to go to the next thing. You got to go to the next thing. And it dawned on me that after a while, that creates anxiety and stress in my life. I can't function like that because I I leave a train of unconnected relationships that I believe God's put in my life, but I can't maintain them because I'm constantly running to the next, to the next, to the next. Maybe you could relate at a different time in your life. Maybe you feel like that at work. I don't know. But I want to thank you because in the last couple of years, you've allowed me and given the, put the trust in my wife and I and our ministry team to change that schedule a little bit. We've tried to tweak it so that we're not so event driven, but we want to become oikos driven. We want to become relationally driven because we believe that's the best way to win our world for Christ is through our relationships with people. So I have a really great story. I love this story because it's not a, and then I kicked the winning field goal and the team won. It's not one of those stories. Or, and then I shared my faith and 100 people got baptized. It's not one of those stories. It's just a regular, everyday story, which I think is what epitomizes an oikos centric ministry. It's everyday stories that add up to miracles. So last week I was able to go to get a cup of coffee and a piece of pie with a friend of mine. He's the adult son of a friend of mine. His dad, who I'm friends with, lives out of state. But his son lives here in California. He's down in Orange County. And years ago, when I led the singles ministry, I got to know his son. He came into our ministry, but he was in a dark place. He wasn't doing well spiritually. And he eventually left the fellowship. But we hit it off. I really have an affinity for him. He's a wonderful person. And I really like him, and I've tried to keep in touch, but as I said, we were so driven to the next, to the next, to the next, that it was very hard for me to keep in touch with him other than an occasional email or text that I might just randomly throw out there hoping we can maintain some kind of connection. Well, in the last couple of years, we've worked really hard to not put so much burden on the schedule to be more oikos focused, more relationally focused. We still have events and they're awesome, I'm not down on them, but we've created some bandwidth. And not only that, but we've also created a focus. I wanna focus on these people and I want you to focus on the people in your life. And now that that's in my mind, I started thinking about him again. So I contacted him through a text and before, same thing, it was just a text, didn't really hear much back, but this time he replied. And he goes, man, I'd love to get together. I said, great. So we were able to make a time last week, which was so nice because there has been weeks in my life where I wouldn't have been able to do that very consistently. So I made the time. We got together. We had a piece of pie. We had a cup of coffee. He was in such a great place. He's doing really well. And he wanted to know about the church. He wanted to know what was going on. He's still not what we would call faithful, but he was in such a better place. And so... We had a great time talking. And you know me, I'm always thinking, well, can this lead to him coming to know Jesus? What can I do? I mean, what's the angle here? I'm always thinking in terms of how can my relationship with him bring him back to the Lord? And so we get to talk, and turns out he's got a great job. He lives down south in a really nice part beach community down south. And I'm thinking, oh man, that's going to be hard to get him to want to come up here. I'm going to have to. Maybe, maybe he'll go down there. And then he says to me, oh yeah, and I am started dating. And I said, oh that's great. And he goes, she lives in Thousand Oaks. I'm like, yes! Yes! That was the big news. That was the big story right there. But what it did is it gave me a little bit of hope that I can invest in him. I can pray for him. I can begin inviting him. I can get into the conversation with him. And I can prepare myself to be there for him. So that At some point, I make it easy for him to come back to the kingdom of God. So thank you. Thank you for allowing us to rethink how we're doing church. And I hope the same stories will be said by you. I hope we will hear a whole litany of stories, boring everyday stories with no big hurrah moment. But little steps along the way that lead to big hurrah moments. If you want to prepare yourself for your oikos, you're going to have to stay connected to your oikos. No matter what comes between you, you've got to stay in touch. Chapter 4, verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has not put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, Like those condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. We are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly when we have, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. So we're closing out what I want to say for now about Paul's letter to Corinth. We'll end here in chapter four. And if you might have guessed, the fractions that happened in the church, the factions, the cliques, they were doing more damage, not, not just damage to the church, but they were damaging people like Paul. His reputation had taken a beating. He was being mocked, criticized by a number in the church, dismissed as unimportant. And that was hard for Paul to hear, especially since he was in Ephesus, being the scum of the earth, being homeless, being treated poorly. And here's this group of people who he loved, who he was trying to stay connected with, and they were now bad-mouthing him. It was a really difficult time in Paul's life to find out what was going on in Ephesus. I mean, in, in Corinth while he was in Ephesus. The irony is that Paul was anything but unwise or weak or dishonored. I mean, he was anything but that but that's how they were portraying him in his absence. I read this passage and it dawns on me that Paul refused to retaliate. More importantly, he refused to cut him off. You know, he did throw some jabs in there. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't relate to it if Paul didn't make a few comments sarcastically. Oh, you're wise? We're not? Okay, okay. You're honored and we're just, dis- okay, okay, okay. I feel you, I get you. Like, Paul gets this. And so he's being a little sarcastic in that language there to the church, but he wasn't willing to cut them off. As hurtful and as hard as this was for him to deal with, he didn't write them off and say, you know what, go your own thing, whatever. Do your thing, I'm out. So asked ask a question as we close out here why do you think Paul didn't cut them off? After all this rotten stuff they had done, why was he still willing to hang in there, still willing to try to reach out to them? Why was he still connected to them? He loved them. Anyone else? Yes. He was following the example of Jesus was his, what he knew, what he focused on. And so he was being like Jesus, loving them in spite of how they treated him. Yeah. If you cut them off, you lose them. That's what Paul said in the, later in the chapter, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. I gotta love Paul for this reason. He wasn't willing to cut them off and write them off and go and self-care for himself and say, you know what, you're just bad for me. I need to move on. He didn't do that. He was willing to love them even when they were unlovable. And I think that's the last thing I wanna point out here. That if you're gonna prepare yourself for your oikos, then you gotta prepare yourself to love them more than they love you. It's a very powerful thing, love. It has an incredible ability to overcome obstacles, to forgive debts, to forgive hurts. I don't know about you, but I have my oikos in my head. I know who they are. I want you to think about your oikos for a minute. If you're like me, a number of those people offend me. They bother me. They hurt my feelings. (laughs) They really do. And I am so tempted in my flesh to just say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm moving on. Find a better Oikos person. Like, I, don't, I want a better friend. But what kind of Christian would I be if I wasn't willing to love them more than they love me? So if you want to prepare yourself for your Oikos, you're going to have to love them more than they love you. You know, if you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, if you'd like to make a decision to follow Jesus, believe me, we would love to help. It starts with three things, the ABCs. Admit you're a sinner who needs to be saved. Believe Jesus is Lord and covenant with him in baptism. If you'd like to know more about those things, all you need to do is ask. Ask the person I invited you. Come and talk to me if they won't answer because we really would love to, to help you in that, in that journey, in your journey. If you're not ready for that, that's okay. Because we want to be a church where it's okay to belong before you believe. And so I hope you'll come back next Sunday, part two, preparing ourselves for the Oikos principle. We're going to stand at this time and we're going to close out in a word of prayer. Father, it is so wonderful to be a part of a great fellowship of people who love you, who love others. God, I pray that you bless us now as we go forth. Help us to get out into the world and mix it up with the people that you've put in our life. Put into practice these principles. God, we pray for the stories, the little stories, the little bits of movement of people as they move into a relationship with you. Thank you so much for this incredible fellowship that we're a part of. Thank you for being our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.